Welcome, podcast friends. We have a fantastic episode for you today. Last year, we published The Best Investment Writing, Volume 4. We offered authors the opportunity to record an audio version of their chapter to be released as a segment of the podcast, and listeners loved it. This year, we're once again bringing you the entire volume of The Best Investment Writing, Volume 5, in podcast format. You'll hear from some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers from all over the world. Enough from me. Let's get to our guest and let them take over this special episode. Hi, this is Larry Siegel, and this is Debunking Nine and a Half Myths of Investing. This talk was prepared for Ted Aronson and his firm AJO Vista and has been revised for the current situation. How did I become a mythbuster? A quick look at my website reveals that I've written at least six articles with the word myth in the title, not counting earlier versions of this article. I guess the answer is that I'm amused by human folly and for some odd reason feel the need to correct shoddy thinking. But I also think that it's an easy way to help people to get them to stop acting against their own interest, something everyone does from time to time. A brief commercial. I also worked the word folly into the title of my latest book, Unknown Knowns, on economics, investing, progress, and folly. Please buy it. Just type Unknown Knowns Folly into Amazon. That will distinguish it from all other books that have the words unknown and knowns in the title. Thank you very much. Let's get started. Myth number one. I'm going to use the words quote and close quote to bracket the myths so that you don't think this is what I believe, but so that you understand that I think it is a myth. Quote, there is so much indexing that the market must be getting more inefficient because there is not enough money managed by people who analyze securities. Close quote. My response, fat chance. About half the assets in the U.S. equity market are actively managed. That represents trillions of dollars overseen by analysts who diligently try to beat the market. While their success ratio is not great, they do engage in price discovery, enabling index funds to free ride on their efforts. And corporations can price their own securities, as Rex Sinkfield, one of the founders of DFA, pointed out decades ago. They issue stock when they think the price is high and buy stock back when they think it's low. This activity is a major contributor to price discovery. At any rate, if the market were becoming deliciously inefficient, in Jeremy Grantham's memorable phrase, we'd see it in the alphas. We don't. Myth number two, quote, interest rates aren't rising, so the government can borrow all it wants, close quote. About a decade ago, Carmen Reinhart and Kenneth Rogoff came out with a masterly study showing that highly indebted nations get into trouble when their debt-to-GDP ratio exceeds 90%. They did not literally say that this was a tipping point beyond which recovery was impossible without an inflation that destroys the real value of the debt, but a reader could be forgiven for thinking that's what they meant. A little while later, a group of researchers found that Reinhardt and Rogoff had made a data error. Some people ridiculed Reinhardt and Rogoff's work for that reason and came to the astonishing conclusion that because R and R had been a little careless, debt doesn't matter. Borrow away. Well, debt does matter because you have to pay it back. Or if you're a government or a certain type of private borrower, 
you can just roll over the principal, but you have to pay the debt service, interest and possibly a portion of the principal over time. We don't know where the tipping point is, and it may be different for each country and in each time period, but at some point you can't pay the interest, much less the principal. In other words, if we don't have debt problems now, at some level of indebtedness we will. More than 200 years ago, David Ricardo noted that there are only three ways the government can raise revenue. One, current taxation, which I call taxing the present. Two, borrowing, which necessitates future taxation, so it's taxing the future. And three, inflating away the real value of existing assets, which is taxing the past, because that's when the income used to purchase the assets was earned. Nothing has changed since Ricardo to make his observation any less valid. So we will either get higher taxes now, much higher taxes in the future, or inflation. Which one do you think it'll be? In a forthcoming article, Wiley Tillett and Jeed Potkameter of Franklin Templeton and I wrote, Inflation is a ninja. A shock to global growth will flatten you, but you will see it coming. But inflation will kill you in stealth. It can creep up on you year after year. While inflation does not seem like a threat to portfolio values at this time, that is when investors should be most vigilant. Beware the ninja. We wrote these words in 2019, but they're much more relevant now, and not because inflation over the past year was 5%. We can live with 5% for a while. I also don't mind that wages are up. That's a good thing. But my beach house rent has doubled since 2019. Unfortunately, I'm the tenant, not the landlord. Gasoline is up 50% over that period, and car rental prices are up 70%. The restaurant meal I ate tonight is up 20% from last year. Different people have different consumption baskets, so inflation is personal. In my case, and that of a lot of people that I know, inflation is much more than 5%. Beware the ninja. Myth number three, quote, we are in a new era of breakneck technological change where growth outperforms value permanently, or at least as far out as the eye can see, close quote. Well, this is already a little out of date. The S&P 500 value benchmark narrowly outperformed the growth benchmark over the 12 months ended October 31st, 2021. But on a cumulative basis, growth has massively outperformed value in the last decade plus. In a 2019 white paper, Charles Dalziel and Graham Shaw of Orbis, an investment firm in Australia, argue that value and growth follow cycles that are more or less predictable from valuation levels, not from the duration of the cycle, and that the cycle has not been repealed. Thus, they believe we are on the verge of a period of substantial outperformance for value. Let me first quote their conclusion, then I will comment on it. They write, value has a long history of outperforming growth, and while the opposite has happened starting around 2006, investors should require a strong argument before accepting the unusual performance of growth as a permanent fixture. Falling interest rates and unusually rapid technological development are often cited as reasons for a paradigm shift to a world where growth stocks will permanently outperform value shares. But when you look at the data, you find that technology has not achieved a growth rate faster than what was achieved historically, 
and that historical return differences between value and growth have not been sensitive to large changes in interest rates either. Now, while as a value-oriented investor, I'd like to believe this literally, it's just a little too cute for me. Fundamentals, not mathematical relationships, are what drive stock prices. I think that when there's a technological revolution, growth does indeed win, and when there is less of a technological revolution, or none at all, value wins, so value wins more often than, than growth does. But when growth does win, it wins big, as we've seen very recently. This idea is just a conjecture, and it needs some research to support it, so I'm planning to investigate it further. I have not yet done so. We saw growthy markets in the 1920s when automobiles, radio, and electrical appliances were the technological frontier. In the 1960s, with the Onyx boom, I almost said sonic boom, when any company with a name suggesting a connection to electronics went up massively. And as all of us here remember in the late 1990s with dot-coms. Then we saw it again in the last decade. Tech revolutions almost have to favor growth because the huge tech companies that dominate the market after a tech revolution were small before the tech revolution. But big valuation disparities such as are produced by these revolutions can't last forever, so value will have its turn sooner or later, and when the turn does come, it is likely to be big as it was on many occasions in the past. You do not have to look back all that far to see a big gain in the value benchmark relative to growth. We experienced that in the few years right after the year 2000. Myth number four, quote, we are in a new bipolar world of U.S. and Chinese dominance where those two economies are the only ones anyone should care about. Since it's hard to invest in China, a very large weight in the U.S. is a good idea. Close quote. I'll start by admitting that the non-U.S. markets, both developed and emerging, have been absolutely hammered relative to the U.S. over the last 10 years. Now let's look under the hood. The U.S. had an equity market capitalization of $48 trillion as of late 2021, and China between 4 and $5 trillion, according to MSCI. The World Bank gives a much higher number, $12 trillion for China, because it includes Hong Kong and maybe Taiwan as, as part of China. The next 20 markets, which I can't list here for time reasons, total $42 trillion, about the same as the United States. Japan's market cap is bigger than China's. The UK is about $3.5 trillion, and there are seven more countries with market caps over $2 trillion. Don't you think there are some stocks in those 20 countries that somebody would want? And let's not forget the fastest-growing economies in the world. According to Nasdaq.com, they are Guyana, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Bangladesh, and India. It might be hard to get stocks in the first three, but that won't always be the case, and Bangladesh is already in the MSCI Frontier Index. There are a number of frontier market funds for those who are interested. India is a well-established emerging market, and the case for investing there is well-known. And then there's booming Vietnam. There are many enticing investment opportunities in the world, and the farther afield you go from the mainstream, the more likely you are to find overlooked companies. In the unlikely event that you have no views on any of these countries or companies, 
the efficient or Markowitz optimal equity portfolio is the cap-weighted all-country portfolio of world equities. And unsurprisingly, there is an index fund for this too. Myth number five, quote, big data and AIML, artificial intelligence and machine learning, are the next big thing in active management, close quote. Brian Kelly, formerly a professor at the University of Chicago and Yale, and now with the investment management firm AQR, correctly points out that machine learning, sometimes mislabeled artificial intelligence, is just applied statistics. It is what you learned when you read Thomas Bayes, who lived from 1702 to 1761, and Carl Friedrich Gauss, who lived from 1777 to 1855 in your advanced statistics class in business school or an economics department. But statistical inference feels different and works differently when you apply it to really large amounts of data with really fast and cheap computers hence the new terminology and media hoopla. What is new, in other words, is the speed of the computers, the sophistication of the programmers, and the unprecedented abundance of data, not the basic thinking behind the methods. The thinking is two and three centuries old. Big data and AIML are a really big deal if you're a credit card company using applied statistics and endless computing power to mine the 369 billion transactions last year on a planet with fewer than 8 billion people for information about consumers. But if you are a humble stock picker mining the monthly returns on 5,000 stocks, or worse, an asset allocator with returns across fewer than 100 significant stock, bond, and currency markets, your data set is tiny by big data standards and will produce, at best, small incremental gains relative to what you can accomplish using traditional analysis. This is not to say that Professor Kelly is against machine learning. He's a major advocate of it. He just wants you to know the limitations and be able to cut through the hype. Myth number six, quote, central bankers can get us out of any kind of scrape we get ourselves into. A flood of money into the economy is the pill that cures all ills, close quote. When you're a fireman, you benefit from an abundance of fires. When you're a central banker, which is a boring job except in economic emergencies, you benefit from emergencies. If you are always running to the rescue and perceived as successful, you become a rock star, asked for advice by kings and presidents, invited to the best parties, and feted in Michelin three-star restaurants. Now, real emergencies do happen as we found out the hard way recently, but having economic firemen in charge does not make for good long-term policy. Looking at the fiscal rather than the monetary side, John Maynard Keynes said that governments should engage in deficit spending during downturns and build up a surplus or reserve during periods of growth, which is to say most of the time. However, today's so-called Keynesians think that it's always an emergency so they are always trying to stimulate. On the monetary side, we have something similar. The cure for every real or imagined threat to economic growth is lower interest rates and easy money. You could call this view of the world a crisis crisis. Everything that happens is a justification for expensive intervention. This benefits, you guessed it, 
the interveners. The first central bank intervention during the 2007-2008 meltdown was right and necessary. The continuing policy of quantitative easing was not. There is no evidence that it did any good. The recovery was slower than normal. Yet unwinding the policy has the potential to do substantial harm. Central bankers should stop trying to be rock stars and should manage the money supply to a steady and predictable rate of growth. With COVID, again, the early interventions were right and necessary. But we do not have an exit strategy, and too much stimulus will again do substantial harm. I've already talked about the inflation we're currently experiencing. It could get worse, with parlous consequences for government, business, and consumer finances if interest rates rise sharply, which they could. This has happened before. Stop it already. Myth number seven. Quote, the endowment model is still broken. Close quote. And it's still a myth. Most endowments are doing fine, not walking above us or crashing in illiquid investments. Their performance has been workmanlike, just normal for what they set out to do. Endowment returns should not be compared to the S&P 500, which bears no resemblance to any benchmark that a perpetual endowment should have, but to the world market wealth portfolio of equities and bonds, or more cogently to their goal of earning enough to meet payout requirements and still remain whole in real terms. I am writing a paper with Barton Waring on endowment and foundation spending, so look for that sometime in the future. The Nobel Prize winning economist James Tobin said that, quote, the trustees of endowed institutions are the guardians of the future against the claims of the present, close quote. As such, they should pursue conservatory strategies, not maximally aggressive ones, and should be judged against the Tobin criterion. Thus, the correct statement that endowed institutions as a class have underperformed during the 2009 to 2021 bull market is misleading. They have, by and large, done what they were supposed to do. Note that the world equity market delivered much lower returns than the U.S. market. Moreover, long-term bonds far outperformed any conceivable expectation, so that endowments would have been irresponsible in taking the risk of holding long-term bonds, even though those bonds worked out well in hindsight. Liquidity matters. As numerous market sages have said, liquidity is a coward. It runs at the first sign of trouble. Harvard and the University of Chicago painfully relearned this lesson in 2008 and 2009. But endowed institutions have developed technologies, mostly consisting of an Excel spreadsheet, for managing liquidity requirements in the face of significant allocations to illiquid assets. One large endowment, the Helmsley Trust is led by Raz Husinian, who spoke at the Foundation Financial Officers Group in San Francisco in May 2019. She said, tongue firmly in cheek for the first part, and I quote, We classify assets into four liquidity categories. Now get ready. This took a lot of thinking. Safe, liquid, semi-liquid, illiquid. We define them literally in terms of how quickly we can get the money, regardless of whether that liquidity impairment is caused by the underlying illiquidity of the investment or by legal encumbrances such as gates and notification periods that affect how quickly you get your money back. 
That's the end of her quote. She went on to describe each category, then concluded that, quote, by defining risk in terms of liquidity, all the levers within an asset category were open to us, close quote. They did not have to limit exposure to illiquid assets out of fear. They were able to manage the process and achieve the desired balance between liquidity and other investment characteristics, such as expected return. Myth number eight, quote, the global economy can add 4 billion plus people to the middle class and at the same time stop using carbon-based energy to support the quality of life as we know it, close quote. In the rich West, we may be using too much energy or we may not be, but an awfully large number of people in the rest of the world use way too little. Mercy Najima, a Kenyan doctoral student, explains, quote, Consider the women and children who spend hours every day searching for energy resources. Once they start burning biomass, for example wood, indoors with no ventilation, the acrid smoke causes serious lung disease. More people die from smoke inhalation than from malaria. And because children have to help collect fuel during school hours, time spent on their education is severely reduced. That's the end of the Mercy Nujima quote. And you want to take energy away from these people? As Václav Smil, probably the world's leading energy expert, points out, energy transitions, wood to coal, coal to oil, and so forth, take a long time because of the size of the installed base and the capital required to create a new energy infrastructure. 60 years is a typical transition time, but if we have a head start, as we do with nuclear power, because much of the technology already exists, we may be able to speed that up some. But in the meantime, developing countries will use more carbon, not less. Developed countries have already started to cut their carbon usage, with energy efficiency improving at about 1.5% per year globally. That rate compounds up pretty quickly, adding to a very substantial energy savings over time. The alternative, a carbon sudden stop, would condemn the 4 billion to eternal poverty and ourselves to something similar but not quite as bad. Energy is the master resource. Carbon stores an awful lot of it very efficiently, and renewables such as solar and wind power are attenuated, pose serious storage problems, and use a lot of carbon in mining and transporting the needed materials. There's no easy answer. While we should most certainly try to mitigate carbon emissions, we should also devote resources to climate adaptation. And we shouldn't punish the world's poorest people for wanting to live a little more like we do. Myth number nine, quote, we will be in a low return environment in the near future, close quote. Not a myth, but reality based on the numbers. It depends, of course, on what you mean by the near future. Truly short-term forecasts are worthless, but we can make generalizations about the next five or ten years. The 10-year real treasury bond, or TIPS, yield tells you exactly what market participants collectively expect the real risk return to be over the next 10 years, minus 1% per year. Now that's a low return environment. It reminds me of Will Rogers' wisecrack that, quote, I am not so much concerned with the return on capital as I am with the return of capital, unquote. He was joking, but what he said is no longer funny. In riskless bonds, you will not 
even get all your capital back in real terms, much less a bonus for foregoing current consumption. In the equity markets, the expected real total return, including dividends, is given roughly by the earnings yield, that is, 1 divided by the P.E. This number is currently 3.7%. Not too bad in a negative 1% real interest rate environment, that's an equity risk premium of 4.7%, but much, much lower than the historical average return on equities. Now I proceed to myth number nine and a half, which is the longer-term version of myth number nine, which turned out to be not a myth. Quote, we will be in a low-return environment for the indefinite future, close quote. This is completely wrong and totally a myth. My first book, Fewer, Richer, Greener, shows that over the last 200 years, U.S. GDP per capita has mushroomed from around $3,000 in today's money to about $68,000. Another brief commercial. Please buy this book by typing Fewer, Richer, Greener into Amazon. Thank you. Global GDP per capita has grown over a somewhat shorter period because the global data start later, from a little over $1,000 per person to about 18,000. Remarkably, the world average, about $18,000 per person per year, is now approximately what the U.S. average was in 1949, when the U.S. was incontestably a first world country. I'll say that again. The average person in the world lives at about the standard of the average American in 1949 when your grandfather was already a grown man. Can you think of any reason why this growth should suddenly stop or slow dramatically? We hear frequently that we're facing the end of the world, or at least of economic growth or productivity growth, but the world doesn't care. It keeps growing at about the same rate as it was before. While there are fluctuations in the growth rate across time and place, for example, the center of gravity of growth has shifted from Europe to the United States to now Asia, The overall trend should continue along the path that it has followed in the past because people keep innovating in an effort to do more with less. And innovation is what causes incomes and thus corporate profits and stock prices, which follow incomes pretty closely in the very long run, to rise. Betting against human ingenuity and the desire to better one's condition is a fool's game. The democratization of wealth in the last half century with some of the world's poorest countries emerging as big success stories, Bangladesh and Vietnam come to mind, has been amazing. Africa has started along this path too, mostly just in this new century. It is the first big break the world's poor have ever gotten, and I don't think it will stop. You certainly don't want it to. This broadening of the culture of prosperity will take a lot of capital and will reward risk takers on average over the long run investors should look beyond the United States for opportunity in the rest of this century. But don't write off the United States either. In the U.S., where we have a deep store of human and physical capital, as well as the long-established rule of law and protection for property, we look to several ways of bringing about a sustained jump in productivity and labor force growth, with its associated gains in GDP, sales, and profits. These include a much-needed fix to our immigration policies, 
a better balance on regulation, and exploiting the new technologies of genomic engineering, eco-engineering, and AIML, even if the last is really just applied statistics. The future will be fascinating and much more prosperous than today. As investors, let's think creatively about profiting from it. Thank you for your time. <music>